Hey guys, welcome back to the OPD podcast with Austin and Joe, and we have a guest on today. So we had to do a little shuffling to uh, get our times down, but we finally nailed it down. And today we have on IP Pro John Jewett, who we've had him on before, and I believe the last time it's pretty much polar opposite situation. You're really close to a contest, and you know we talked. I, I think we essentially talked about prep and just some of the nuances and things that you did differently um, in that prep versus previous preps. And, and we just talked about contest prep in general, but this time we're going to flip the script entirely. And uh, we're going to talk about off season and we're going to talk about just some of the ins and outs and more importantly, like what a longer off season may entail. Now we should put some, parameters on that too because like John in your case I assume one of your goals is probably to go back to the Olympia next year and you know so unless I'm off base but I'm assuming that's probably one of your goals and then in that case like your off season is not going to be super super long but you know we can talk about just longer off seasons uh, where somebody may not necessarily be competing year to year um, so first off, talk to us a little bit about your off season right now. Let's talk about, I did want to talk about that a little bit. Now, your situation's unique too, because you obviously have a weight limit. Now, I don't know what you weighed in at last year, so I don't know like what kind of wiggle room you have there, but are you pretty close to the top at this point? Yeah, well, well I mean, first off, guys, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. I'm a fan of the podcast, so always good to come back on. Um, but it, yeah, as far as my, like, like the last time we had talked, I was just about to do Tampa. And so a lot has happened since then. But uh, going throughout those shows, like at Tampa, I, I weighed in right at 211. But that was for an afternoon weigh-in. And not having to do a whole lot to make weight either. Um, then from there to Olympia, was extremely productive. I really think I actually put some tissue on or possibly just fullness. And so at the Olympia, I was again right at that. I was very close to 212, like 211.6. But that was for a morning weigh-in. And that's also with like being able to have two meals and fluids. So some slight, slight wiggle room, but you're not, you're not talking about much. And you have to be considerate for how much you can really pull down with, before you start sacrificing the look, right? And so... For like, you know, the different weigh-ins and different shows, you have different time periods to fill out. So like Tampa, I think we have about 16 hours before you get on stage from weigh-ins. The Olympia, that's even longer. So you potentially could pull down more and have more time to improve the look. So maybe, maybe, maybe four to five pounds is what we're talking about for an off-season, um, which, which, which isn't significant, but, it, you know, put in the right places – you know, could, could present a good look. So it fills in any gaps, you know what I mean? Like you can, you can fill in gaps that you have with four to five pounds of muscle for sure. You know, on, especially in stage condition, that's a lot, that's significant. I would say. Yeah. And so it's like, well, you look, you look at you. So like coming out of a show, you look at your stage picture and say, all right, where, where are the gaps in my physique compared, you know, compared to myself and within these other guys you're competing against, and uh, where can I add that and structure my training set up for the next offseason to, to add that on? You know, here's so, an interesting. So for me, my, my main thing was 
Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Continue. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So my main focus was, was shoulders, then second chest, then triceps from there. And uh, which four to five pounds within those muscle groups will go a very long ways. It's not like trying to throw it on legs or back or something. So, Right. I had a discussion with someone the other day, too, that's kind of interesting in terms of like muscle get just overall muscle growth and and symmetry and flow and aesthetics and it uh talking about how how much do you push for how much do you push for that perfect symmetrical physique or how much do you push for just gaining size because there is something to be said about people that do have freaky body parts and like how that draws an eye to you uh, from the judges like you know mm. Maybe you might lack in one spot or another, but are you going to get more attention if you have, you know, just a couple body parts that are really stand out? And that's not to say that everything else is really weak necessarily, but, you know, if you have something that's like, oh, his, you know, his quads and his delts are crazy. So like the front relaxes, boom, you see it, you know what I mean? Or something, or his hamstrings are nuts in that side, in that side pose. So just like, you know, anything like that, that, that draws um, attention you know, somebody told me a long time ago, when I first started bodybuilding. I was so worried. I was like, like hundred pounds smaller, you were 80 pounds smaller. So of course, at that point I had no business worrying about weak body parts because they were all weak, <laughs> but they said, you know, don't, don't stop training or don't reduce the amount of training for stronger body parts because that stuff does get you attention on stage. And it's stuff that will draw the judge's eye to you. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I think it definitely has bearing. I mean, I think that I'll have younger guys come to me in bodybuilding. It's like, oh, my, my arms are weak. It's like, well, you know, you're under 200 pounds. I think overall programming goal should be for overall size, most likely, you know. But uh, And then those stronger parts are probably going to get freakier, which, hey, take, take it, you know. Um, but I think as you get up to a high level, you do have to get more specific. Um, I, you know, when I look at the Olympia stage, you have a, a, a lot of guys that have a ton of freaky parts. Uh, right. It, like, like Phil, for instance, like everything's pretty freaky on Phil. So it's not – I think you're not having that one guy that only has this one freaky body part at that level that I guess that I'm trying to, to really think of. But uh, at least for – I can speak for myself. You know, I don't feel like I have these really – stand out super freaky parts so it's more about getting as complete as possible so i think playing off of like your own physique and what what brings it for you yeah is what you still have to do um yeah i don't think i have like the crazy freak factor i have like the balance and symmetry so that's what i have to to really focus on and make make even stronger um if i was a guy that had these really freaky parts and maybe not as much balance and symmetry I don't know. Maybe it'd still be beneficial to try to work on balance and symmetry and make the other parts stand out a little bit more. Um, it's still bodybuilding, so the, the symmetry factor has to play into it. Do you have yeah. someone in mind that like really like comes to your mind when you think like freak factor that those muscle groups stand out way more than than something else? Um, I mean, if you're going up, like you said, really high level, you know. Yeah, there are parts that jump out on people that you could point out, but then if you really break down their physique, they they don't really have anything weak. Like you could you could look at someone that like a Kai Green, right? He had the his his lat inserts were really freaky and his mm -hmm. biceps were really freaky. But if you really wanted to look at the rest of his physique, 
wasn't anything that was really that bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, so in, in that regard, no, but I guess my point, you know, talking about training and prioritizing training and things like that, I do think that people that are beginner to novice maybe get caught up in that a little bit too much and and lose sight of just overall progression and trying to progress week to week, month to month. And yeah, I mean, I did, I, and I bring it up too, because I kind of was, I did that with myself and uh, I was able to bring my upper body up quite a bit and, you know, to kind of match my lower body a little bit better. This off season, I haven't even, I'm, I'm literally on an AB split where I train everything the same frequency, like, you know, uh, and everything seems to be, you know, everything seems to be growing well. And I, and the overall growth is so good that I, and I don't really have, I think that the weaknesses aren't that noticeable, but yeah, I just think it's something that people get caught up in too much. Um, and the programming lacks. It's, it's funny because I, my programming has literally got, I'm not going to say simpler because my execution's good, you know, like my execution's good. And I know, I know what I need to do to warm up my CNS and like all this stuff. Right. But the details of my programming are, are far less than they were probably five years ago. But my progress is much better. I think, um, and, and maybe John, you could, you could come in on this. Austin, as you've got bigger, I mean, we've known each other for years. And as, as you've got bigger, you've got stronger. I think just your amount of effective volume has come down significantly. Just yeah. probably by virtue of you nailing execution and getting stronger and that's probably what, what a natural progression is for most people so john maybe asking that to you are you noticing as you progress through into now a new off season are you finding that your volume capabilities are reduced or there's anything used in your training exercise selection wise it could be in terms of in the past that you you've changed moving forward definitely and I, I think tying all that in, what, what you're saying, like for, for strong body parts, you have such this, uh, a lot of people have a greater connection with that body part. So that volume specific for that body part might have to be a lot less because that one set is so much more effective at, at you know, giving that hypertrophy stimulus that you just don't have that volume tolerance anymore and, and that's I think that changes as you progress so like from I think from beginner to intermediate you kind of have this raise and where you can handle more volume then it tapers back down as you get more advanced because you get more effective and you get stronger right so that that same set volume is more effective definitely for me like for leg training like I connect incredibly with my leg training and, and my my lower my lower body volume is significantly low right now like I, I only have um, six to seven sets a week for quad training and same with hamstring training. And so like, that's a, that's a very strong body part, but those, those sets, I, I'm, I'm taxed. I'm so done in my, my leg, leg day. Um, mm. So that's come down a lot because this, this, my past off season, I've been up around like 10 sets on leg training, quad hams, but it's come down a lot, but also with programming in mind, Hey, I want to allocate more, volume within my upper body so i have to take it back from somewhere um so taking it back from from leg training definitely and and like you said too i think within the exercise selection picking exercises that you can apply an effective volume to so i have movements that it's like the movement to do right like you just have to do 
um, like a, a bench or squat. A squat to get squats a great example. You have to squat to get big. It's like, yeah, that might not be effective volume applied into the quads. While let me be hack squat is more effective. So exercise selection can definitely determine how much set volume you can do from there. But also, I like, I like your point about monitoring progress, though, in the off-season and, and how you should be monitoring how much volume you should be doing. Mm -hmm. like, that's something probably people don't do to track long-term. Like, Yeah, for sure. I think I'm fairly similar with you for, like, legs. Like, I was having this conversation with a friend in the gym today. He weighs – I think he just got on stage at, like, 130 something natural competitor he may be up to like 150 something now so i've got about 100 pounds on him and he he was talking about the amount of volume that he did because he said i've been here for three hours and we both training legs and and it, and i and we just got talking about volume and in terms of my my quads my real tolerable recovery markers are only around that five or six set marker like you a week or I can see all of my objective data go into the toilet. So that's, you know, I, I don't want to trade off intensity and mechanical tension overload for just pushing more volume in. I'm not a fan of, of volume training. Again, it's, I guess something new degree people should look at is like personalizing your programming in a novelty sense around you. Some people's psychology state, like psychological mindset towards training is going to be geared towards all out failure training. Volume's going to have to be lower, you know. Some people like training with a few reps in reserve. You're going to have to train with more volume. So I guess they're the kind of things you consider moving forward and just base it on you, not what somebody else is doing. So I probably wouldn't want to train like you, and you probably wouldn't want to train like a 150-pound natural competitor either, you know. Right. So I suppose that's something for people to, to take moving forward. I'm sure you'd agree with yeah, I've always and that's where and that's where like go ahead, John. No, I, I've always thought of the hypertrophy stimulus of, of the effort level in the set is is you know what is the main driver for those hypertrophy, like the quality of that set. And then volume is purely the dosage. And we all need greater dosages, less or more to make that you know be effective. So yeah, and it's and this is where and this is where the research lacks so badly is that you talk about like what my objective you know with most people even though my clients across the board their training isn't the same right it varies but my objective is we don't want to waste a ton of energy in the gym right like we want to go in and do things that are going to be um give us a big roi you know and whether regardless of what that exercise is and like you said john the selection is going to be different like you think compound exercises barbells dumbbells that's a big roi which that might be true but it's not necessarily true for everyone there might be machine exercises that are their activations incredible and they, they they get a big return on those machines and that's fine but the the the, the demand of a set for somebody that's using 500 pounds versus the demand for set that somebody's using 200 pounds like we start we start having to talk about the cns side of things and just like what that's why a lot of the time that that volume is going to go down as joe said it's kind of a curve right intensity goes up typically volume is going to have to come down a little bit because you're 
and if you didn't bring it down, then your sets are just going to be crap after a while. Like you're going to get a few sets and you're, you know, you're just not going to be training at a maximal level. The weight's going to drop substantially. So that's, that's why like when you look at research on volume, you have to take into consideration like what kind of load is this person using and like what, what does it even take them to get to this load? I mean, I squatted today, right? It took me like six or seven sets just to get to my, to get to my top set. Right. I mean, that's a lot of energy. And, and of course, during that, I'm still accumulating volume because that's still heavy. Like there's still heavy warmups in there and it's still doing something right. But at the same time, like if you're squatting 225, yeah, you can do more sets because you do a couple sets, you're ready to go. And, and the demand on your CNS and overall recovery capacity is not going to be taxed that much. So, you know, a bigger guy or somebody just not even necessarily bigger, but bigger and stronger is probably going to have a little bit lower um, recoverable volume, I guess you could say, just because, again, the, the sets are going to be so freaking demanding. And I think that that's where, that's where people start arguing. I'm like, I'm not going to sit there and argue with someone that that weighs 150 pounds. I'm like, yeah, you're going to be able to do more sets with me and you're going to be able to recover better. Of course. Right. Because you're using like a quarter of the weight and it's the same as like biologically typically have better recover, you know, are better at recovering than men. It seems like at least like while they train, you ever trained with a female that's pretty, you know, in good shape. Like she can, she's good, like 60 seconds. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know we're we're laying around on the floor like we're laying around the floor huffing and puffing and yeah it's a biological thing but they're also just have less muscle mass and they're using less weight typically you know so all those things you know all those things have to be considered when we're talking about like how much how much volume should someone use well dorian yates only used a few working sets and work how well dorian yates also barbell wrote five plates and you know incline press five plates like that's a shitload of demand like it's you can't that's stimulus right there you know it's a lot of stimulus so i think people just kind of miss the boat on that whole thing and they try to like plug in these numbers and make it so black and white and it's just not yeah no within the research like the big thing has been using reps and reserve right it's just so hard to translate some of that over into practical application and especially in higher level bodybuilding i can even see that even more because like you're saying like dorian yates rowing like 500 pounds like okay if you're going to do a volume accumulation block adding one more set to him might might push him from his like right over to you know his like maximal recovery volume like they might just be like a very tighter range for something like that to where you're really not able to do these volumes. Like the only true way to make progress at that point might be just microloading week to week of weight reps. Um, so your volume window is so much smaller for, for what you can recover from and uh, what's, what's going to push you beyond, you know. Um. Yeah. So in terms of off season, progress here we sort of tackled the training it would be a case of across the board monitoring auto regulation and monitoring your own biofeedback i suppose to figure out the correct equation for you like 
an example that pops into my head when we're talking about marriage of exercise selection. If I said, all you're going to do for your quads is BFR, spin bike, and leg extensions, you'd probably laugh. But that's what Luke Hoffman does, who's probably one of the best minds in hypertrophy research in the world. You know, just because they, they fit him. Um, so I, I, would, I think discussing volume landmarks and, and exercise selection is great, but everyone needs to remember that these things are just a guide. Like those volume studies, really, what, the only thing they practically show is that there's a dose response in volume and hypertrophy. They don't say you should go and do 40 sets. Exactly. It's because in practical terms, like you say, John, it doesn't make sense in, in people that, you know, and even in research when they use the term failure, what, what's failure to them? When their participants said, oh, I can't do it anymore. You know, that's not failure for us, is it? So be cognizant of your own feedback, I suppose. So how about, um, well, we could stay on training. Maybe you could give us an insight into anything that you've personally changed this off season. Yeah, well, I will, throughout prep, I was, I, I, I love doing push-pull legs. I think that there's a lot of, a lot you can do with that. Um, throughout all my, my prep, I was almost had three pull days a week and two push days and like a true leg day. And actually, I think my back improved while I was on prep. But then getting feedback, it's like, okay, I, I need to add in more, more shoulder days and probably scale back on back some. So I'm, I'm currently doing, uh, I have two pull days a week, uh, two push days and a leg day. That's why. Which, <laughs> Which was great and all, you know, and I, you know, I set my plan up. And I'm like cruising along, making great progress. And then you start having these little niggles and little things start to accumulate. And you just keep going through it and until uh, it's just like now I have like my golfer's elbow and my, my other, my, you know, my uh, conius is inflamed and my, my left pec is giving me issues. So um, it's still trying to get smarter about auto-regulating and not getting too stubborn in training and starting off doing too much, which that's, that's been, I, I've done this before and you keep moving through training with the same amount of volume or program or exercise selection. When it, when you should realize that like a change should occur and I should have realized that. So um, that's been kind of my, my issue. It's like the muscle groups I'm trying to bring up, I added too much, too much volume in and now I'm having to back down to try to heal up these areas before I can keep progressing again. So, you know, start, start low. <laughs> when you set a new plan, you're doing something different. Uh, you need to start out with just with almost an acclimation week, I think is, is nice to do. Like a lot of things, people come out post-show ready to just blast and stomp the gas down when you're in a pretty vulnerable state for, for most and you actually going through, I think, contest prep and peak week itself is almost a deload in the sense that you have this back off in training. So coming back to training, people can get racked easy, especially working with the high cardio volume and everything that goes in with that. So I start, if you're going to set your exercises and try a new plan out, that's when I would, I would actually utilize RIR to set your set your loads, set your reps of where you should be working, test exercise out, and then slowly progress up there, get the most from the least. And uh, that's, that's kind of what I wished I'd, I've done. I, Cause I started out with skull crushers. My elbows feel great. I'm going to really progress skull crushers. 
and uh, I had a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of triceps size on. And it's like, oh, it starts bothering me. Okay, I can keep going. And then finally, it's like, okay, my elbow's fucked. I can't do any skull crushers anymore. Um, so it's uh, yeah, so trying to trying to be smarter with programming and not not adding the wrong exercises for myself, which I I keep going back to certain ones. It's like I just can't do it, you know. Yeah, for sure, man. I think when you're coming off the back of a prep and foods going in, inevitably regaining some lost strength and stuff. It was great. Progressively overloaded without even trying. But um, I think it's always a wise idea to use an exercise selection that minimizes joint forces but maximizes muscular force output, you know? Um, so that's solid advice, man. And also, like, progression week to week. So that's something that I've had to think about since I'm doing lower volume and primarily focusing on overload. Like, some weeks you want to get greedy and get that that 25-pound PR, right, or that three-rep PR, when really you should probably just add a rep or because execution starts to lack and then kind of – and then, you know, the next three weeks you're fucked because you can't you know, you can't progress anymore. So I, and some people may like to do it that way, but like I've found that sometimes I, I definitely do better if I don't want to say conservative, that's a terrible word to use. But um, if I kind of just don't get too greedy with the PRs, if I'm feeling good, just add that five or 10 pounds to the bar instead of jumping up and potentially maybe getting injured for one and causing, you know, causing issues in that regard or um, leaving myself nowhere to go in the coming weeks. Like, because also mentally, right? Like mentally you're going to feel better about progressing week to week for the most part. Like if, if I can make small progressions week to week, I'm probably going to feel better about that than hitting a beating the logbook one week and then not being able to beat it for the next three. Right. So um, taking that rep where you can, especially for advanced guys, you know, it's, um, it's hard enough to get a rep here and there or get five pounds or get 10 pounds, especially when you're deep into the off season, like right out of a show. Yeah. Like Joe said, you're going to progressively overload by default because you're so weak <laughs> after the show's over. Right. So, um, like today I squatted and I, I definitely think I probably could have squeezed out another rep, but the, the execution would have really started to lack and, you know, maybe I would have gotten hurt potentially. And so I just kind of, hit that hit that one rep uh pr or one rep over the logbook and i'm like all right we need a racket and that was it so kind of figuring out like what is a good progression scheme in terms of how fast should i actually try to progress you know yeah and I, I think i think chasing the logbook can get pretty dangerous for a lot of people and i even like using a zigzag approach sometimes because that I remember I posted one time that I, I dropped the load back to hit like a rep PR with a different weight. People are like, but that's not progressive overload. No, it, it still is. And I think using the term progressive overload might not always be taken wrong. It's really a progressive stimulus, which can be given in a variety of different ways. A set weight and a set rep, it makes it fairly clear. So you have on your logbook, whatever, 500 pounds for 10 reps. It's like, all right, well, I'm at 500 pounds. I can go only go up there or go up from reps. Well, you could go back to 450, you know, and it, hitting another rep at 450, that load volume for that set might increase. 
which it'd still be a progressive statement in a sense. So if I feel ever like overly beat up by going to my low rep top set, I'll back down and wait and try to hit a PR with the higher rep set, which we know hypertrophic stimulus can occur from six, even up to 30 reps in time. So don't think that you have to be like that eight or nine rep mark. Like you, you, you can wave your rep range just throughout the week to be productive and probably stay fresher that way. Yeah, even, and of course it's applicable within the exercise. Obviously you're not going to go for like a 20 rep squat. It'd probably be taxing for me, probably breaking for the would be too challenging. But uh, within certain exercises, I think it can be fresh mentally, not having that huge weight of trying to get under mentally and your CMS or under like a heavy, heavy load. Yeah. Maybe make a progression that way. Then next week, go back and see how you do it. I think it's a good yeah. way you break, break through plateaus if you're like at that, that weight and that rip and it's just not moving. Which, you know, try drop up, drop a load back and hit a high, higher rep PR. Then, then go back to your heavy loads. And move, it, move it that way. Yeah. yeah. See, I'll I'll do that with people and use like rotational, like rotational schemes. We'll have you know, kind of maybe just for an example, maybe it's like four to six rep increments, and then we rotate back through again. You know, and then we rotate. So each rotation, we're trying to beat the previous rotation, but we're not necessarily training at the same reps every single week. They go through the rotation restart try to beat it restart so it's not like a weekly pr because they are training at different rep rotations but you know they do have they can and i I like that idea and i do the same thing myself where i'll where i I have it on paper sometimes sometimes a certain rep range won't feel good so i'll Mm -hmm. i'll take it down or push it up five six seven eight reps and maybe even use a lighter weight and yeah like you said progressive overload is if i did 400 for 10 before and I've been using 500 pounds and then I go back to 400 and I do it for 15 well that's you know that's progressive overload mm-hmm. so it's I definitely like rotating rep schemes and that's an easy way too. like so people ask well what do you do when you stall right well that's that's a great tool it's it doesn't have to be super complicated I mean the two probably the two best things you can do are assuming you're not you know overreached right or overtrained let's take that out of the equation but two of the best things you can do are probably rotate exercises and rotate rep schemes and and try to restart progression so um very simple it doesn't because sometimes you might have a training program that you're recovering from pretty good the volume's good the setup's good like everything is good you don't necessarily want to like trash the whole program so you can you know rotate an exercise rotate a rep scheme um you know, when you're advanced, like it's in your, or closer to your top end strength, I mean, you have to, you're, you're going to be repeating exercises and you're going to have to rotate through things you've already done and you're going to rotate through them again. Maybe this time you're stronger than last time. Like all of that is adding, all of that is progressive overload in the grand scheme of things, you know. For sure. So um, <clears throat> we spent a lot of time on training and we've pretty much done the whole podcast. <laughs> so here's our, here's our training. The offseason. We, we've also spent a lot of time on training and not given any real specific answers, but I think that is an answer in and of itself of these things just aren't um, textbook answers, which is a big problem with people. Like we, we spoke about reading these papers now and taking them for 
actual almost examples of program design when they're not they're, they're a steady design to again show like a dose response um potentially in whatever variables are being measured and don't get me wrong there are there are low volume studies showing quite the opposite of these high volume studies as well where intensity of effort is the primary driver of hypertrophy what was it the bow is it bow hallow is that the name of the the researcher I'd have to remember, it was a while ago that I read the paper, but it was something like 10 sets a week looking to be at the optimal um, tip of the inverted U-curve for hypertrophy response. So, yeah, just to just to clear that up, um, not all the research points to the same thing. Yeah, and people, and people get too married. People are too married to, like, certain styles. And if you're coaching, if you're coaching, that's, like, the biggest mistake ever. Yeah, I, I post about my training and post videos, and my clients are like, well, I want to try that. Like, well, no, because it's not, <laughs> it's not going to work for you. I'm, I'm coaching you. I understand. Like, I know what you need, and it's that's not what you need, you know. So um, maybe not only for yourself, but I think a lot of people that listen probably also coach other people too. So it's like they having a style is pretty much the worst thing that you could do. And it's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't really have a style of training that you're married to and that you use with everyone. I think that that's, that's such a faulty train of thought. Yeah. It's, and it's tough with social media because you get known for a certain thing and then that soon becomes your identity. And then you have to identify within that structure. Um, like if you're that hard training failure guy and people start giving you attention for being that guy, it's like, man, it's hard to step away from that because you, you're, if you've taken that up as kind of an identity, but uh, you're right for your clients. Like, and I do think I attract what I put out as well. So those people that cater towards that type of hard effort set training, I get more of those people. And even like I have more of a meticulous OCT approach, I get more of those clients as well, which it kind of works out, but I still get one that's like way in the left field that shouldn't be doing my type of training or doesn't, is it meticulous at all? You have to use the, a different approach for them. That's, that's like, that's more of like a uh, marketing podcast because dude, I get, I get, I get tons of people that I post something and then I, you, yeah, it's like, I post about health issues all the time and correcting these issues. So inevitably I get all kinds of people that are all fucked up and need, need help fixing, fixing these issues. And, uh, guess, guess what? If you post about drugs all the time, you're going to get tons of people. And the very first thing they're going to ask you is what drugs can I use? You know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's, (laughs) that's just what's going to happen. So I guess you definitely, it is, it does kind of suck because it does, uh, you definitely have to be diverse in what you talk about because people do will kind of uh, pinpoint you as a a one trick pony, if not. And you know, that's definitely not the goal, but how about we talk a little bit about nutrition? I think we should at least touch on that a little bit. Um, So hang on one second. Let me rotate here. Okay, cool. So, John, what, uh, anything different this off season, like in terms of, I, I actually have a good question for you. Um, have you found, have you found that food intake like calorically has varied much between like, as you gain size 
or because obviously at the same time you're also getting older so metabolic rates probably <laughs> slowing down at least slightly over time Do you find any kind of relationship there well i guess you you have to keep in mind like i've i've been around this 212 competitive area for about three years now so i haven't had this drastic increase in size but the fluctuations between off seasons and, and calorie intake I, I don't think it's been that dramatic yet last year i think i peaked around 5,000 calories at one point but again i was like 245 then and, and fairly soft uh currently I think my average calorie intake is I know I have to think about because I have like three different uh, diets <laughs> uh, for each day. I think I'm around 4,000 right now, and but I'm, I'm around 236. I was 236 this morning, so I, I don't think I've seen a dramatic change at least yet. Now, from when I was a lot younger, like I have diets pulled back when I was doing like 6,000 calories in my early 20s, and that that was like I barely gained weight and I was 200 pounds. So definitely from, from that age to now, it's, it's changed significantly. But within these past few years of off-season, staying close around 212, I haven't seen a dramatic change. Um, and I, I know I've listened to you. I know you brought up your, your thyroid, your blood work. But I have seen this, like, increase in TSH over time and a little bit change in thyroid function. But I don't think that has really been clear to, to see it within my nutrition. You know, it hasn't been that dramatic to, to really impact it. Yeah, because I was on um, like eight, let's see, I was eight weeks out from Chicago and I, I tested my thyroid panel. I was just having all the normal symptoms of kind of like uh, prep, sleep alterations, water retention was increased. So like, man, I'm going to see what my blood work's at. And my my t t thyroid TSH was up, T3 was low, reverse T3 was high. It was like typical type of stress-induced thyroid decline. And so I started on some um, Armour Thyroid prescription, just for, just for replacement. And then coming out of prep, I started getting like, I was like six weeks out of prep, and I stayed on it, like heart palpitations all day long. It, it was just extremely uncomfortable to feel your heartbeat at any moment, or it goes away, then all of a sudden it's like, bam, it just hits you again. It feels like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm having like oh, heart issues. And uh, sure enough, it was just like some, I guess, thyroid functions returning. And I'm still taking the same dosage of thyroid hormone. And uh, I just have like hyperthyroidism symptoms. Um, so that, uh, so now it's no, no thyroid hormone, but my TSH still stays around 3.5 with off the last blood work I had. But T3, T4 are within normal. So there's been this kind of a rise in TSH over the years. Um, I know more aggressive practitioners yeah. will keep that lower, but I, I feel good and metabolically, I haven't seen a huge difference in it yet. Now, I'm still saying it's very, very lean. Like I still have lines, everything. I'm like, you know, 14 weeks post-show, so. No yeah, the thing the thing about that is like even even with my when my thyroid was clinically you know hypo you got to think like most people aren't in a calorically controlled environment you know what i mean so they're getting fat because they're overeating yeah. and they're hypothyroid you know what i mean so it's like you could be hypothyroid and not get fat if you just eat according to what your 
what your caloric needs are. And um, mine was kind of the same. Like mine was kind of that just steady. Like I had years of lab work where it just steadily declined over time. And I don't know that it was like one could say, okay, it was prep induced or whatever, but there was probably a three year, three and a half to four year period there. Where I did a long off season where I was in a caloric surplus almost the whole time. Yeah. And besides a couple little pullback periods. So, I mean, obviously it would have returned to normal at that point, whatever normal is. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. So that's just kind of like just generally getting a little bit, not that you're old, but you're a little bit older, you know what I mean? So stuff does, uh, stuff does slow down, but at the same time, like it isn't always, it isn't always a terrible thing for metabolic rate to kind of like chill a little bit as long as it's not too slow because at least you don't have to like power shovel down, you know, 7,000 calories a day and hate your life, you know? So there is, there is a plus, there's a plus side to it, I guess. Um, yeah. I'm not like my intake's not uncomfortable at all. Like I, I have two high days a week that are around 4,500. 700 grams of carbs and then uh, my other day is 500 grams of carbs 3600 calories but my low day is low it's it's like 100 grams of carbs 120 grams of fat 20, 2600 calories so um yeah like, like a probably average out to around maybe 3600 4000 calories which it's a comfortable intake for me like i'm not by any means hungry any day or feel like i'm stuffing down food but my body weight's progressing nicely so not not like Austin pounding down a thousand grams of carbs. No. <laughs> How is your hunger signal then at this point? It's good. Me, my hunger. Oh. No, not you. you yours you yours has gone gone with the wind, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm I feel like I'm just where I should be. Is on my higher carbon days that are lower in fat, I get hungry just prior to meals. Uh, on my low days, actually, days that I don't have much appetite because fats are so high, I, I just don't get hungry. I, I could easily probably drop down to five meals a day, even on the lower calories, and, and not have that hunger signaling. Um, I just I, I feel much better, though, on my high days doing low, low fats. Like My fats are probably around 40 grams, and digestion just, just cranks on those days, and I can put down that high amount of carbohydrate. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what's been yeah. for me, Joe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, he said it averages out around three thirty-six hundred or so, which, yeah, I mean, that's really, like, not a lot of food, really, no. if you think about it. It's not a lot of food, but but the thing is, like, if you – nutrient absorption is good and you're, and you're growing, that's fine. And another thing to think about, too, is, like, how much – metabolic adaptions a big subject like i have people that um they might only eat four thousand calories in the off season but they only drop down to two thousand to get in shape you know what i mean like so their their window there isn't really that big compared to somebody like myself that the window is like so giant between top you know top bottom and and even with uh so it's not really like a I would probably rather that. I would probably rather have that window where I ate a little bit less in the off season, but it got to eat a little bit more, you know, in in the prep. And I and I know that you got pretty low calorically, but like as a whole, um, 
that metabolic adaption window isn't isn't like gigantic whereas it was uh i have to be some there has to be some kind of we need a new study they need to put me in the metabolic ward for my next contest prep and just see what uh see what happens since i went from 1400 14 to 1500 and now i'm over 6500 and and it's like my steps i'm actually <laughs> my knee levels are higher now <laughs> than they were then and and still you know it's just uh yeah it's wild it's unfortunate because it's kind of a pain in the ass and i don't really uh i do not really enjoy it at all at the moment <laughs> so, mm, I went in via. that was suck i think i have yeah. like i have like four clients like that right now and it's, it's very frustrating to coach because they've gone from preps like it's like to get them moving like, like there's initial but then it's like I have to push them so far and keep making change their week to keep fat loss occurring. But off season, like it's it's just like you you build them up, build them up. They'll have weeks they're like dropping weight or it's their set weight maintenance. But it, that is to have that adaptive component that they just subconsciously have ways they increase need and fight that body weight shift. Sure. And sure. Uh, beyond just you know actual raising and metabolic rate it's like the body like you'll subconsciously just maybe you sh you, you you shake your leg more or you get up and move around more you don't even think about it um right so right. that's how but I, I know how, how challenging that is i think I, I feel like i'm more middle middle of the road like i i'll have normal adaptations kind of a eat your way which uh yeah i won't complain i'm okay with that <laughs> no yeah it's well like i said this this time I was a little more conscious of like tracking overall knee levels. I kind of wanted to see what would happen if being conscious of trying to keep them. Cause obviously I was also doing like formal cardio and prep on top of whatever my meat was, right. Whatever my steps and stuff were, which I tracked. Um, I was doing some like uh, cardio, typically like two sessions a day, normally depending on, you know, what day it was two to some days in three sessions. So all that was, all that's out plus, you know, plus my, my total step count and meat is actually higher, a little bit higher now, obviously, because I just don't, I'm not dead ass tired all the time. And uh, yeah, still the window is just so big. Um, it's, it's baffling. It's definitely like how <laughs> makes you, it definitely makes you wonder how that's, how that's even quite possible. I actually increased calories again today. And wow. I don't know, like, I don't know what my, and the thing is my body composition is not bad. You know what I mean? It's not like, like pretty even fat distribution. I can still see my abs, my lower body's still visible. It's all still there. But uh, I, I truthfully think I'll probably have to pull back just from like not being able to physically eat anymore versus getting too fat <laughs> and uh, probably just fast for about a week. <laughs> just, just not eat just not eat for a week um yeah i've been doing some fasting days occasionally i throw i throw one in on an off day like i fast for most of the day and that's about the only time that i'll ever be hungry fast i'll be hungry i'm ready to eat have, have you found your benefit like, to this good have you found benefit to just like when you're at this point just to dive into like 
a mini cutting phase, not necessarily for body fat reasons, but just to kind of have that adaptation go the opposite way for you and, and hold, hold a different calorie level that maintains you, then kind of like push it back up and maybe you wouldn't have to go as high. Yeah. I have, like, I, I have to, I'm, go, I'm going to have to at some point, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's typically where I get most of the time is the adaptation is so much that unless I'm and, and another thing too, is like increasing calories. I can't increase calories by a hundred calories. It doesn't do anything. You know, it's just the adaptations instant. So my caloric increases are three, four hundred plus calories at a time, which is, when you're eating 6,000 calories, it's a lot of food to add on top of it. You know, it's just, it's difficult. So yeah, I will uh, pull back. And typically if body fat's not high, it's more of like a resensitizing phase. And just mm -hmm. to get my, get that adaption to come back down in the other direction, like you said, it doesn't have to be really long. If, if the primary goal is not to shed body fat necessarily, if the, which I mean, I'll, I'll lose some fat, of course. But if that's not the primary goal, I mean, even just a couple weeks, I can pull it down really hard and not lose a substantial amount of weight other than just water and glycogen. And then I can kind of restart at a lower caloric set point and squeeze out some more weight before I have to pull it back down again. Um, but yeah, you have to be strategic in that regard. Like this is the most I've ever eaten. I don't really know where the ceiling is because I'm still not, <laughs> I'm still not fat yet. And I'm, and I'm eating uh, macros today. is. 375 protein, 1,050 carbs, and 105 grams of fat. So it's like I really don't know. <laughs> like I really don't know where where the ceiling would be, other than I just can't physically eat anymore. So I'm gonna start blending food. I'm just gonna start blending all my shit. Nighttime <laughs> drink. Internal tube tube feeding. <laughs> Even and with some of these other guys I've had, like that, have pushed them that high, and their weight barely progresses. And I, the the other stopping point that I notice is in like blood glucose and triglycerides start getting really elevated in a couple of these guys. So it's like okay, I need to pull back. Not not because um, if I push food more, like you could probably keep progressing, but health markers are starting to get in a bad position. It's yep. like, we, we, we could utilize things to lower glucose or, you know, with insulin or something, but that's like furthering putting someone in a hole. I think another reason to like pull back for these guys that are really, really high is, is monitoring these health markers. Yeah. So, so you almost have to like in that rate, especially a couple of things, like if, if they're using growth hormone, you're absolutely going to have to use insulin with that kind of like food intake, right? I mean, because it's their blood glucose is going to be atrocious. So, but you're right. Like you'll notice, you'll notice even though that their weight doesn't go up, if their insulin requirements are kind of like incrementally going up very slowly, that's one thing. But if you start noticing that their requirements start really jumping up in order to keep their glucose down, even though they're not gaining a lot of weight, they're definitely becoming resistant and there's a lot of inflammation and yeah, yeah. You could just keep increasing insulin. Like Joe and I talked about it. You could, you could artificially keep blood glucose down for quite a long time if you just kept adding more and more. But if, if your ratio of insulin went from 
one IU per 10 grams of carbs and now you're eating one IU for like four grams of carbs, you, you got a problem. Like you're, you're just because your glucose is still at 90 doesn't mean you're not insulin resistant. You know, that's kind of an art, it's like artificial. So yeah, it's, it's putting a bandaid on it. You know, there's still, right. still an issue. For sure. Yeah. John, you mentioned that you were, you were kind of recycling this um, off season. Can you give us maybe some insight into your reasons why and how that helps you in an off season setting? Yeah. I mean, I, well, I, I have to give some credit here to Andrew Vu cause he is, he's my, my coach. He came on board mid prep with me. So I've done some calorie cycling a very, very long time ago. I worked with Shelby Starnes before I even got into bodybuilding. He, he uh, prepped me for my wedding. And uh, so that's kind of when I first started even learning about nutrition was looking at Troponin Nutrition, Justin Harris and Shelby Starnes and calorie cycling. So I've always done some form of it. And, uh, but this has been the most extreme coming post-show to do this caloric cycling. And it's so like N equals one, right? So I can just really just speak for myself, but I have noticed with it that I've seemed to stay a little bit more insulin sensitive in those days that I do go high carb. There's just a much more like robust effect in training and uh, performance and along with, with just pumps and how I feel in the gym. And uh, I've noticed like body fat accrual during this has been a lot lower. So I've never been this lean this far post-show. And there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's really just controlling calorie intake because I've debated the fact of like, hey, what if we don't cycle and we just averaged all this out and made a mixed carbohydrate fat diet? Like, would you get the same result? And I can't answer that because I don't have my twin here to apply it to. Um, I, I think it really comes down to what is best. What do you feel best on carbohydrate fat wise? I definitely feel best like lower fat, high carb. So just the calorie cycling has been favored, but we, we program the cycling based on what I want to improve and the time of day that I hit training. So I train after two meals. So I have my pull day, which is my highest, highest day. So I only get like two meals in and I train that's coming off a low day. So then I have all these high carb meals post pull day. And that leads into my push day, which is my main day I really want to hit hard. So I probably have the best fuel training-wise, the highest glucose and insulin secretion and everything on my, my going into that push day. So that's how it's been structured. So push day, then go into moderate, like a moderate carb day. Then my leg day is like a moderate carb day, and I go back to a low day. But uh, that's, that was the idea. It's like, hey, well, why don't you put the high day on your push day? Because that's what you want to prove. Well, I only, only train off two meals, so it made more sense to put the higher carb day prior to mm. that push day. So you have two, two higher carb days or higher calorie days, I should say, on your, on your pull days. The push days are moderate calorie days. Is that the same, same for your lower day, same for your leg day? The, the low day is the same as the push day, so it's still around like 500 grams of carbs. It's just those, yeah, those pull days go up to seven. And then your days off the gym, your rest days, they're the lowest calorie days. They are, yeah, 100 grams of carbs, 300 protein, and 120 fat. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've pretty much just started doing something similar only for this diet. Um, so it's, it's pretty weird that you said that pull day to push day setup because I'm doing that uh, 
that's pretty it's cool. it's been effective you know i go back and forth because i really don't have a like going through research and stuff you can't you, you can't, i can't pull it out to what's truly been the best but i can at least say result wise post show for me this has been the best situation that, that i've had at least conditioning wise uh, progressing the gym and and prolonging that like post show insulin sensitive like crazy pump feeling that you get like this has for sure been the longest um, yeah and you know i think there's something to be said like macro cycling calorie cycling person to person in terms of insulin sensitivity like i genuinely have people that if you put a bunch of fats in their diet their blood glucose goes up like they they become insulin resistant with that they can do high carbs trace fats all day long and even on the same like calorically the same spot and then vice versa myself like i do good on high fats like i could eat a high fat diet and I rotate like that. I rotate higher fats on my non-training days, and it doesn't. Um, and it does help me bring my blood glucose down from those higher carb days. Whereas other people, like I just can't use a higher fat, lower carb off day with them because their digestion gets sluggish and their gastric emptying is probably slow and all that stuff, you know. And their blood mm -hmm. glucose just hangs really high. So, yeah, like you know, people are like calories, calorie balance throughout the week, whatever, blah blah blah. But you know what, like. It, I really, when you want to get to the nuances of like choosing what macros you should insert into your caloric needs, it should really boil down to your digestion, your insulin sensitivity, what makes you feel good and perform good. Um, you know, and those things like calorie balance does not account for any of those things. No, you know, at, at all. So at the end of the day, we're still performance athletes, right? I mean, we're still, we sought to be able to perform and um, plus like, like you said, in that, that whole kind of post-joke rebound insulin sensitivity, all that shit, you know, Hey, how long can, how long can we push this off season? If you can not get fat and remain, keep your blood glucose down for months and months and months, that's going to be a more productive off season than if you get fat in three months and you know, you have to pull back down. So like learning these things and figuring out like how it applies you know, how it applies to you is, you know, it's, it's going to be useful. So yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing in prep, you know, coming from metabolic adaption side of things, you would think you just create a small surplus and stay at the same or small deficit, and stay at the same deficit all week. But some people just adapt to that. They need days where you suck it down really low to create that deficit. And then days where you're a little bit closer to baseline. And that's how they lose fat. Why? That's why refeeding works. You know, that's because it, you, that calorie cycling. So, yeah, I, it just, uh, I just kind of laugh like at these guys that <laughs> that want to argue the whole calorie balance thing as the end all be all, and they haven't gained five pounds of muscle in the last fifteen years. So, <laughs> it, it has been interesting because I had my blood work done just post-show and then, then six weeks into this like push phase and my actually my a1c has decreased nice. my glucose is is uh it was 79 maybe c went down from a 5.1 to a 4.9 um, triglycerides were cut in half uh, so it's like good health marker changes and still like 
utilizing this phase, which I've been in the past, I've had my A1C up to like a 5.6 in the off season. Um, so uh, maybe there is something to it, you know, being able to have some days where I'm low calorie and then going back to high calorie versus pushing every day up high. Just like you're saying in prep, like you give someone a refeed day in prep and they're all about it. I, they would, you know, swear on the science of it, but you give someone a low calorie day in off season and they would nearly fire you <laughs> as a coach. Cause it's just like, no, I got to grow every single day. It's like, well, no, you, you do the same kind of thing in prep. You, like, there is a calorie rotation to it. You can do the same thing in off season. It's very productive. Yeah. More productive, especially for us, if we have these extended off season phases. It's like, how, how fast is muscle truly going to grow? You know, yeah. higher level you're at, it's just going slower and slower. So really those, those food progressions and weight progressions are going to be much slower than what they used to. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to be in a huge surplus every day. It's just not, it's not necessary figuring out like you, like you're doing, figuring out where it's a little more applicable to work around your training split, for example. I mean, that's a great way to do it. Um, also figuring out like, figuring out like how it applies to somebody's schedule and lifestyle and all that stuff. I mean, it definitely, it definitely makes a difference if it was, because if it was just, if it was just create a surplus, like you just use some kind of macro app and just kind of like go on with it and every, everyone would be exactly the same. And that would be that. So uh, it's interesting. You mentioned your A1C went down, you know, I, I did for the other day, not the other day, but my last blood works maybe probably a month ago, I would say. I tested, I had A1C tested, blood glucose, all that stuff. Um, tested my, so I tested my fasted insulin levels too, right? Um, like, well, at, at the time, I think I was eating about 900 carbs. I'm like, I wonder, because my glucose, my blood glucose was still controlled for the most part, but what happens with some people, you know, is you, your blood glucose would be controlled, but they have that like hyperinsulinemia where they're on the back end, their insulin levels are really high yeah, because it's trying to bring it down. And uh, no, it was still, it was still right at the bottom of the range, which was pretty, which was pretty surprising. So I, it would make me wonder if, if I were to do a straight carbohydrate based diet, like, like I said, cause I do tolerate fats. Well, if I was just doing a straight carbohydrate diet every day without any low carb rotation, like, would it look the same? You know what I mean? Would I have fasted, like, would I have insulin levels that were really, really high at that point? Um, so like stuff like that's just not really, just not really considered. I don't think at the end of the day, like an optimum, optimally functioning body is always going to produce the best results in the long run. It's just, it's a no brainer. So within that Austin, like what's, what's your, what what agents do you have like in place to ma for managing blood glucose? So I do well for one the calorie rotation. I do use a GDA, right? Um, and then typically anyone like I said, anyone that's this high, I'm I'm pretty much going to go basal insulin. And well, I won't say that because some of that depends. I say that because of the convenience thing, and I know Joe has said this too, like kind of leaning towards that basil with a lot of people because it is so easy and convenient and it works and you just do it in the morning and you're done. And, uh, but so, you know, there are people that still use the rapid insulins and you can, 
or use them both. We actually just did a whole podcast on, on insulin, rapid basal combinations, like all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're pushing food like that, basal insulin or some kind of insulin is probably going to be necessary. I mean, there's not, I'm, I, I would doubt, I would be surprised if someone could eat a thousand grams of carbs outside of someone that's just really, you know, kind of ectomorphic and fast metabolism. If they could eat that kind of food for an extended period of time and a surplus and not have high blood glucose, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't, <laughs> I don't foresee that happening. Um, metformin, that's another one. Um, I know there's a lot of debate about that. Does it, in terms of like what it does to IGF levels and different, we've talked about that as well. Uh, I believe Joe, you might've posted the study about <clears throat> how that works mechanistically. Um, mm. And yeah, I did. I, I did. I did cover a piece on that in terms of the IGF one and, and then what actually is the difference between endocrine systemic localized autocrine and paracrine IGF ones and understand that they're like a, an all-inclusive situation. Yeah, so so not necessarily <clears throat> lowering systemic IGF one's a little bit different than lowering mm -hmm. localized IGF one production. In, in many cases, <clears throat> reducing IGF one is a positive for bodybuilders, which sounds right. great. But, um, yeah, I mean things like like systemic, just like endocrine IGF one floating around unbound outside of the muscle cell no nobody wants that right that's that's what we think of when we think of igf1 being problematic mm. is that systemic like release so yeah so we're talking basal insulin metformin gda carb rotation um try to keep you know, try to keep stress down sleep like i literally I know we talk about it all the time, but like I get up, I go to bed at the same exact time, pretty much every single day, um, do all the same shit every single day. Uh, and just, and just monitor, um, just monitor things and don't be, don't be oblivious, oblivious to stuff. You know what I mean? Like people kind of want to push shit under the rug and not pay attention to things because they just don't want to know. Like they just, they just genuinely don't want to know what's going on because, they may, they know what they're doing may be potentially hurting them, yeah. right? Mm. So uh, being conscious of it, like, but like I said, fortunately, uh, my blood glucose looks good. I tested it this morning. It was 81, which is still pretty. Yeah, it's <laughs> I can't be mad about it. I can't be mad about 81 right now, <laughs> you know? So um, yeah. 81, uh, you know, another one is also meal frequency. And this one, people can, people are gonna have different opinions on this, but I actually like, I like a slightly lower meal frequency right now because the meals, there's so much overlap in digestion with that amount of food that if I were to eat like seven meals a day, for example, I would literally have undigested food in my stomach at all times and it would just compound all day long because mm. there's just not enough time between the meals. And I, I typically prefer to kind of get up and fast a little bit, uh, just a few hours, get up, kind of do stuff fast, start eating. Uh, and then 
I'll do four meals and I'll, my intro shake is a meal at this point. It's 200, it's 200 grams of carbs. So it's a meal. Um, but so we'll call it five, we'll call it five meals on training days, but, uh, meal frequency, I, I, I can actually have personal data of blood glucose testing where higher meal frequency, my blood glucose is higher every single time when I'm eating this kind of food. So, you know, keep that in mind. I mean, not people listening, like it's not gastric emptying and like overall time of digestion, especially with high protein diets. And especially if you're adding like fats and stuff in your diet, it's not what people think. I mean, even me like doing four meals, I'm sure I still have overlap between meals by the end of the day. I'm sure. Right. But if I were doing six, six, seven, eight meals, I would probably, uh, I know I would have higher blood glucose because I've seen it. So, um, I have a yeah. client right now, the exact same thing. He's like on 900 grams of carbs. I'm like monitor your blood glucose. And like between all his meals, he was like one twenties, one thirties. Like where, right. what are these times look like? He's like, Oh, well this was an hour and a half before the next meal because those meals are so right. close because they have to be for his diet. Well, this, this is what's going to keep your blood glucose elevated. It's like, and that's exactly a great spot. It's like, oh, we can decrease meal frequency then. You know, have right. some times when you can actually come back maybe close to your fasting. It might not be. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because you have to get in a certain amount of food. You have to, and how much, how much food are you really going to eat in one meal? Like you have to ask yourself that, like how much food are you going to eat in a meal and digest properly so for me not only meal frequency but food selection is like i'm not going to eat over a thousand grams of carbs from rice and potato like it's not going to happen it's just you're asking for problems at that point you gotta get a juices or dried fruits or <laughs> so dried fruits more i think that's a great way to go to get some like dehydrated yep. yeah you get some good micronutrients still get some fiber from them um yep so but I do like the concentrated way to get some carbs in. I'll do the, I'll do. So fruit is good, but the fruit also has like such a high water content, you know, yeah. that it's like, it's not really that calorically dense. So I will do dehydrated fruits. Like you said, like, you know, little bits of dehydrated fruits. And then I'm actually all my carb meals. I add a little bit of fruit juice, like pure fruit juice to the meal. Um, like either orange juice or I use pomegranate juice or just stuff like that to supplement a little bit of carbs. And it also makes the food <laughs> go down way easier. I posted on my story today. It was kind of funny. I, I posted a picture of my, my pomegranate juice. And I said, I use this to wash down the rest of my carbs. <laughs> and, uh, I like <laughs> intro, I pomegranate juice intro workout. Yeah, it's, it's tasty. It's tasty. It's like a little bit of, the uh, OJ, I typically do the orange juice and pomegranate juice are the two that I've been doing. Um, apple juice occasionally. Uh, but yeah, it's food selection's big. Um, I do, like, I don't do a lot. I'm honestly not doing much red meat right now, to be honest, just because I love it. It tastes good. And I love doing like organ meats and things like that. But I just can't, <laughs> I just can't digest all of that with that high, you know, such high food intake. Uh, so it's mostly leaner meats and egg whites and I'll do some whey isolate and, uh, all that jazz. So what, what if that's food selection. Doing, 
with uh, proteins is making them mechanically broken down as possible is rather than swallowing like big chunks of chicken and, and Brown. Beef. Yeah. yeah, like I'll use the Instapot and, or my wife will use the Instapot, give her credit and then shred it with, um, mix it with a hand mixer to where it's like super fine. We'll do that with beef too. Ground beef, put the hand mixer in it and make it even, even finer. Um, just so that mechanical yeah. and it makes it a little bit easier in your digestion to, to run through. That's why I said blending, man. Like I said, like I'm literally like, it's, it's funny as it sounds, it's funny as it sounds like part of the digestive process is breaking down these big chunks of food. And, um, if they're already pre broken down, like ground meat is going to digest easier than steak. It's just, that's just how it is because it's bigger chunks. It's not as dense. So you provide more surface area for the enzymes to work. Yeah, I'm like putting little ice cubes in a in a, in a drink. It's gonna get cool faster. I've uh, I've strongly considered blending. I might maybe I'll do that next like this coming week and just blend all my shit for a week and see if there's any substantial difference in digestion. Do a little uh, experiment. If if I blended all my food and I started getting hungry again, I'd be so excited. <laughs> Man, I tried it one time to put my chicken and rice in a blender. And the amount of water I had to put in to make it a drink, uh, the volume was yeah. like, <laughs> it was way too much. But it's you, like those, uh, came out like those little cans of cat food, like you, like you would open up. It's like a paste, <laughs> a little patty. <laughs> Gosh, maybe I'm just going to start IVing. I'm just going to start IVing everything and uh, we'll call it a day. <laughs> Talking about calling it a day, this is about to cut us off. We've got one minute left, so should we wrap it up? Let's do it. We, 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 did, we did quite a bit of training and then a little bit of diet. I think maybe we'd need a, a day-long seminar to cover uh, John's off-season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of got a little hyper-focused there, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> John, I know you've been on before, but, but please do pimp yourself out. Let everybody know where, where they can find you and follow along your journey. Yeah, if, if you want to follow along on, on Instagram, I'm at John Jewett3. My current website is J3 Sports RD for coaching services. And January 15th will be the launch of Team J3, my LBS subscription website for all my education material and uh, training. And I also have Luke Miller that will be a contributor as well, which uh, you've been on his podcast also not too long ago. So. You, you cut out then, John. Say that last bit again, sorry. Yeah, so Team 3 will be the, 